The internet would not exist in its current form if we didn't have Section 230. You've got members of both political parties who want to make pretty sweeping changes to that. What makes me nervous is that they have a totally different world in mind, which makes me think, all right, let's just leave this thing alone. The floodgates would open to lawsuits and to, I mean, imagine if Twitter was responsible for every single tweet that all of us sent out in real time. That just right. isn't sustainable. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Reiki Schlott. And a reminder, we have this new podcast as a part of our network, the Desi Crime Podcast, which is the number one true crime podcast in all of India. And this is such an amazing group of people. They're highlighting some frightening stories from around India, and it's riveting stuff. And I think if you're one of those people who just can't get enough of this true crime stuff in the United States, there is a whole world of stories out there that you haven't had access to. So check out the Desi Crime Podcast wherever you get your shows. That's D-E-S-I. Uh, we also have a newsletter, uh, the Lost Debate newsletter that we put out twice a week, and it's totally free. You can go to Substack and just search the Lost Debate and subscribe. Uh, and a lot of times we're trying to create newsletter content that enhances your experience on the show. So check that out. And with that, Corey, what are we going to do today? Well, we got a pretty big show. If you can wear it, they can share it. We'll talk about the intersection of innovation and privacy when it comes to wearable health tech. The FDA is moving to ban menthol cigarettes, preventing a new generation from experiencing the refreshing, bold taste of emphysema. We'll discuss the law everybody blames when they're mad at the internet, section 230. And we'll close with a couple of updates, one on Amazon's union efforts, and Principal Robbie will give us an update on the continued attacks against standard testing in this country. But first things first, we want to start with the news that remains the biggest story in America right now, the potential downfall of Roe v. Wade. We've seen immense public reaction in the week since that story broke. So let's start with these protests. Ricky, I know there's been a lot of protests going on in response to this decision. What is going on exactly? Well, so it's hard to get exact numbers. But for example, in Manhattan recently in Foley Square downtown, they had numbers in the thousands. There were Mother's Day strikes across the country on Sunday. And then there have also been demonstrations outside the Supreme Court. They've had to build higher and higher fences in order to protect them, supposedly. There have been protests outside of the homes of Justices Roberts, Kavanaugh, and Alito. Um, Alito's was last night. They held a candlelight vigil for Roe v. Wade. Um, and then the Senate passed on Monday some new legislation that increases personal security for Supreme Court justices, which is like to the level of what members of Congress or White House officials might have. Recently, a Molotov cocktail was thrown at a Wisconsin anti-abortion group's office, and that's kind of been the extent of the violence surrounding this? So I think that obviously like people who commit violence should be arrested here. But I think like I think what I'm witnessing now is this sort of these recriminations over, all right, are the protests the story or is the looming decision the story? And obviously they're both stories. But to me, I think there's like this victimization that I'm seeing from members of the right right now about this when you know, like if people are committing crimes, they should be arrested. And, yeah. and I think there are interesting debates involved here. Like, is it okay to protest outside of somebody's home or not? And I think that these are some of these are really interesting questions. But I do think there's a little bit of deflecting going on at a time when I think a lot of people 
don't want to defend this decision that's coming at a time where, as we covered last week, there are 13 states that have trigger laws that will go into effect if this decision goes as many people think it it will. And there's a ton of activity at the state level to ban outright abortion. And to me, that's the biggest story here. These protests, if people are committing crimes, they, they should be arrested. But I think the focus should really be on how people's lives are going to be changed because of this legislation and this decision. And I don't want to get into whataboutism here. And it's not right to throw Molotov cocktails into anything, uh, especially anti-abortion centers. But abortion centers have been threatened and bombed like this many times over the past few decades since this uh, since Roe v. Wade first went into effect back in the 1970s. I'll also add that it's kind of odd that the Supreme court erected this this eight foot tall what they call the non-scalable wall around the supreme court because back in 2014 they actually struck down a massachusetts law which was mandating a 35 foot buffer zone around abortion clinics to protect the people going in and out of there so it's kind of interesting that was a slightly different court uh some of the people who are on the court now were, were a part of that decision that was a unanimous decision yeah right, by the way in 2014 so it's kind of interesting that the supreme court said well no you can't you know, have these buffer zones around abortion clinics because of free speech concerns, but we can have a buffer zone around us because of our safety. It's a right. kind of here, a bit of hypocrisy. Here's there. Scalia from that decision. He says, protecting people from speech they do not want to hear is not a function that the First Amendment allows the government to undertake in public streets and sidewalks. And as you said, like they that law in Massachusetts that was enacted for a reason. And this is from Jezebel. Since 1977, there have been at least 11 murders and 26 attempted murders of abortion providers, not to mention 42 bombings of clinics and homes, 194 incidents of arson, including the recent burning of a Tennessee Planned Parenthood, and routine stalking, doxing, and threats. And once again, not what about ism, but this gets to the hypocrisy of this court to me, which gets little sympathy for me. They should get as much security as they need. Anybody attempting to threaten them should go to jail. But I have such little sympathy for people trying to hide from public scrutiny, people, you know, erecting barriers that they won't allow other people to have, people who have recovered before don't want to apply simple ethics rules to themselves, yeah. you know, don't have any meaningful transparency as we've talked about. And four of whom were appointed by presidents who didn't even win the popular vote and are trying to escape scrutiny now in the public square to me I, I i i'm i'm not shedding any tears for them they should be protected nobody should commit violence against them but they shouldn't be protected from scrutiny yeah and to be clear i'm definitely in favor of anyone protesting in a peaceful manner i think it's their right to protest peacefully outside of their homes i don't love that as a tactic yeah, same. because I of their families show up to that protest uh, i just I don't think that's either. fair yeah. um yeah. But, you know, the only thing that I would add to this conversation is the fact that this leak happened in the first place and there are some express efforts to change the outcome and to pressure the justices. And obviously that kind of defeats the the whole process and the privacy behind it. But at the same time, obviously what happened happened and I support people's right to protest. Well, maybe trying to change the outcome as we covered, it could be trying to sure up the outcome, yeah, right? Like well, we, we don't know possible. the motives of the people who, who leaked, right? So what's going on in the, in the U.S. Senate? Because I know the Democrats were trying to shore up um, support for abortion rights there. Uh, what's going on? In, so in it looks like Schumer's going to call a vote and it'll probably fail because cinema and Manchin have yeah. both said that they're not willing to uh, override the filibuster in this case. So unless one of the pro or two of the pro-choice Republicans like Collins or Murkowski is willing to override the filibuster in order to protect abortion rights, this is going to be a largely symbolic vote. I do think it will be interesting to see how the pro-choice Republicans vote when this bill comes up. And I think Ricky 
the details could matter here, right? Yeah, definitely. So this bill um, does protect abortion rights into later uh, times in the pregnancy. And so I think that if this was genuinely a bill that was trying to get some moderate support, it should at least just shore up the protections in early pregnancy, which is a less divisive issue. And when you look at what's going on on the state level, uh, I mean, you already mentioned, Ravi, that there were 13 states that passed these so-called trigger laws that will basically go into effect to ban abortion once Roe v. Wade is struck down, which it seems like it will be. I'll also point out that there are a few states that already have pretty strict abortion bans on the books. And it's really interesting when you look at these states in relation to their teen pregnancy rates. Uh, states that have already enacted pretty much full bans on abortion include states like Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma. According to the CDC, the states with the highest teen pregnancy rates are Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, Oklahoma. Mm. Uh, and then you have at least 16 states in recent years uh, according to an article in Teen Vogue that have passed laws to protect abortion rights. These states include, you know, the obvious California, Colorado, Delaware, but they also include states like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. Uh, you want to guess what the states with the lowest teen pregnancy rates are? Uh, <laughs> according to the CDC, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. So it's really interesting that states that have the biggest problem with teen pregnancy seem to be the same states that want to outlaw uh, abortion. And it's like, I don't get that. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, I mean, you both came at this from different angles. Last time we talked about this last week in the sense that no matter where you come down on the issue of Roe versus Wade, I think you both said something to the effect of, hey, there's like a whole other conversation happening out here that we need to focus on. Like, how do we do right by our young people? How do we do right by people uh, who, you know, for one reason or another are caught up in a healthcare system that's not serving them properly. Uh, never mind our education system. This dovetails with some of the things that can and cannot be taught in schools anymore, right? And like, I think you know, there's all this data now about a lot of places that don't offer sex education, for example, in their schools uh, and how that can be contributing to this. And so there is a wider conversation here that I hope there's a lot of, there's a lot of things I don't like about where this conversation is going, but I hope that there's a renewed scrutiny over how we're even um, treating young people and setting them up for success in life. Absolutely. One thing I also do want to point out when it comes to these state proposals is that although there are a lot of states like Mississippi, Texas, there's a representative in uh, Texas legislator that's basically trying to have a, a bill that would not only ban abortion, but would also charge women who get abortions with homicide, which are homicide, which was which is punishable by death in the state of Texas. So, you know, we have a lot of crazy things happening on the state level, but there are some misinformation, there's some misinformation out there on this uh, front as well. Uh, there was an Arizona GOP candidate, Blake Masters, who was accused of wanting to ban contraceptives or was promoting banning contraceptives in Arizona. That turned out to not be true. He is a Catholic. He doesn't support contraceptives, but does not think that they should be banned at state level. There was a Twitter rumor about Senator Marsha Blackburn saying that she was calling for a ban on contraceptives for unmarried couples. That also turned out to not be true. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of misinformation going on out there. So we want to be clear. You know, we want to make sure that we're pushing the true information and the true details here and just clear up a lot of the stuff. Because with, a, with an issue this divisive, there's bound to be a lot of just back and forth that isn't that isn't true. I, you know, Tate Reeves, you know, a guy I used to collaborate with on education, who's the Mississippi governor, didn't rule out when he was asked uh, a ban on contraceptives. Now, mm -hmm. I don't think this is going to be a priority for them. But you, you start to wonder, like, and, you know, I don't know what the status of sex education is right now in Mississippi, but I just know that in a lot of these states, uh, it's not easy to teach sex education. 
if you're flirting with making contraceptives harder to get and you can't get an abortion, I'm like, what kind of world are we living in? You know, that yeah. that I would push back on, that world. I'm sympathetic to a lot of pro-life arguments, um, but I'm not sympathetic to a pro-life argument that's also anti-contraception. I think that's completely unsustainable, unrealistic. It just denies human nature. And so I think that's a really important distinction. And when you see states that are potentially thinking about going after contraceptives as well, like that's just does not do anything to actually fix the problem. Well, um, let's continue to talk a little bit more about health here. Wearable health devices are revolutionizing medicine one smartwatch at a time. Here in the U.S., they're catching on just as quickly as the first mobile phones did decades ago. But the sensitive information they collect is a point of real concern when it comes to data privacy. Now, Ravi, I don't know if you tried to get like, you know, some this segment sponsored <laughs> yeah, uh, because I know you have a couple <laughs> of options given some of the things I've seen you wearing around the office. Kind of walk us through the world of wearables for people who don't know much about it. Right. So I think, you know, a wearable to use the definition here is uh, a medical product or device which combines information technology such as network big data, cloud medical, cloud computing, and like links you up to, in some cases, medical institutions to help you make better healthcare decisions, right? And in 2021, one in four Americans at least had a smartwatch or a fitness tracker, which is kind of at the bottom end of the wearables, right? But that's just the beginning of what is a revolution that's happening before our eyes right now. You're starting to see stuff like continuous glucose monitors, you know, which, you know, if you think about this, I, I've been wearing one most of this year. It, you know, gives you a sense of your blood sugar levels in real time. And if you think about what's the appeal of this to somebody who's a non-diabetic, well, when you go to the doctor, the average American goes to the doctor, let's say like four times a year, right? Something like that. And they'll probably get blood work done some subset of that time. And when you get your blood work done, you get a point in time uh, fasting glucose level. And that's very limited in how much information that can give you versus a continuous monitoring of that, which can do things like flag you for risk of diabetes. It could give you a sense of spikes and dips in your blood sugar, which have you know, has, you know, huge correlation to weight gain and other energy issues that you have throughout the day. So these are, and cancer risks. And so that, you know, the CGM, continuous glucose monitor is just one example of a revolution in technology that we're starting to see out there. You have this thing called the Whoop, which is like a next generation um, smart tracker, which does, you know, HRV, strain, sleep, temperature, ECG, heart rate, like, People are talking about headbands that, you know, are measuring like, you know, your your neuro signals and, oh, wow. and will, will flag you for neuro disease. So there's all sorts of stuff out there that I think will have the, the potential to revolutionize medicine, especially if you can link this data up to your doctors. And I think your experience can go from point in time to a continuous relationship with your doctor, which I think that part of this could be really helpful. Yeah. Those mm. headbands can't read my thoughts. <laughs> I think Not that's yet. at the more experimental level. <laughs> well, the thing is like, in, in, in sticking with the benefits for a second before, there are real downsides to the data, which we'll get to in a second. There are real reasons to think that this revolution can be helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the easiest way to think about it right now is in, you know, our, our medical system in the United States is all about treating disease. Right, you go to yeah. the doctor pretty much to say, I have this affliction, I need you to help me. And even then we're not great at it. Like your experience with the doctor is like, they're shuttling you in and out. You don't have a lot of time with them. Whereas I think people want coaching. They want yeah. longevity coaching. And I think there are a lot of people like David Sinclair at Harvard or Peter Atia, who has like an amazing website where he collects information on this kind of stuff, who are starting to think about and pioneer different types of experiences with your doctor. And there are companies doing it now, One Medical, Forward Health, who are saying, all right, you show up when you're healthy and we'll, we'll 
coach you on to stay healthy. And that's where I think these wearables can really help. And there's all sorts of data. We'll link to a lot of it in the show notes about what wearables can do to you. Like there's these studies that show that you take more steps, that you make healthier decisions, et cetera. And in certain cases, like there are studies um, that show um, there was an Apple Heart study with Fitbit that basically allowed people to track and flag and respond to irregular heart rhythms. And these are the types of things that are really helpful. And the better the technology gets, the more we can get ahead of people and, and prevent disease, not just treat it. And I think that's that's a positive. Another demographic that I think is also um, relevant here is elderly people, especially people living alone. Like I know my dad lives on his own and I'm don't listen, dad, if you're listening right now, but I'm getting him an Apple watch. I, his girlfriend, actually, she's in her 70s and she recently like just kind of stumbled on the stairs and was fine. But her watch was like, are you OK? Do you need help? And yeah. so that's another demographic that could be hugely benefited. And that's a lot of deaths that could be um, spared. I didn't actually buy one. But when my son was a tiny infant, they, they actually make these socks that you can now put on them that monitor all these different things with their heart rate, levels of different things. And they said this could actually be a revolution in stopping SIDS, which is a sudden mm. infant uh, death syndrome, and being able to prevent that by being able to check those levels uh, in real time. Yeah. And you could imagine a world where uh, whether it's an infant or an adult, you can pull up all sorts of data with your doctor and say, this is my my sleep over time. Because like right now your doctor like maybe will ask you, how's your sleep? And then you're gonna be like, want to get the hell out of there. You'd be <laughs> like, it's fine, right? Like, whereas if you can pull the data, this is my glucose levels, this is my sleep, this is my HRV, this can make medicine, you know, just more precise. But obviously there are downsides to this. And I think the biggest is that the HIPAA regulations in the United States to regulate how healthcare providers uh, maintain the safety of your data, really important legislation, right? Because you can, you, there's all sorts of discrimination that can happen against people based on their health. And there's also uh, just general privacy concerns. You like these. Are, this is some of the most sensitive information people have about themselves. That stuff does not apply to most wearables right now, and that has created, I think, a real loophole within the system. And I think the reason why we're talking about this today is that there's a lot of attention paid to period tracking apps and certain lapses in the data in these apps. There was a 2020 Consumer Reports article. They looked at the top five period tracking apps. Only two out of five had easy to understand privacy policies. Only two out of five allow you to use it without sharing your name and your email address. And all five, all five share your, your data with advertisers and marketers. And so this is a huge loophole. There was a company called Glow Pregnancy App that had a huge data breach couple years ago that included uh, people answering a question in their app about a history of abortions. That data was easily accessed by people who didn't even have to have very sophisticated hacking skills. All you needed was the email that yeah. someone signed up with, like not even it's a crazy. password. It's really crazy. And it had like very personal information about like sex drive, sexual activity, like whether or not you'd had diarrhea recently, just stuff that you would never want anyone with your email to access. So this is the loophole. This needs to be fixed. I think Congress needs to get involved here. And I think the simple fix here is some of these things should just be under HIPAA straight up. Like I think that period tracking app should not be under the same regulation as say like your Apple watch data, right? Yeah. Uh, but I also think that in, in any of these cases, the minute you make it a medical piece of data, you should be able to hit a switch and say, I'm sharing this with my doctor. And at that point, HIPAA should take over and, the, and they should not be in any way giving that. I don't like the fact that any company gives your your data to advertisers. But especially in this case, you should be able to flip a switch to say, this is now going to my doctor and now this data is protected. And I think that could be a pretty simple fix to this problem. Is there a case to be made for, say, you have a certain medical condition 
and that data is being sent to advertisers, but those advertisers create a product specific for someone with your medical condition. Yeah, and you should be able to opt into that to me. Like, okay. you know, like there, there's some cases like, you probably have this experience when you're on Instagram, you're like, oh yeah, that's very thoughtful. Like they sent me something that I actually <laughs> really want. They sent you something that you talked about and didn't yes, even look up weird. on your it, phone it is because they're clearly odd. listening to us. That's it is rather what. odd. <laughs> uh, but you could imagine all the different problems, right? Imagine like a situation where you're you're responding in an app and you're, you know, you're you're, cheating on your spouse or something and not you but like one is cheating on their spouse and uh somehow like the data picks up on this uh, that you're having like like it, it has access to your sexual activity and then you happen to be looking on google or on instagram or something with your spouse and it's like there's ads that are highly suggestive of your lifestyle and you're like okay this is like some big brother stuff and this is the stuff that i think a lot of people are going to debate out now that's like the least charitable use case but there are a whole bunch of other cases like people who may have been victims of sexual violence, yeah. people who've had abortions, like and, and ad targeting to those people is really dangerous, uh, and I think is a huge invasion of their privacy. Yeah, you could just not cheat on your spouse too. That's the option. <laughs> but I think people have a, like this is how we think in this country is like we, we believe in a right to a certain amount of privacy. That's true. And mm. but then there's like those are the most least charitable use cases. Like think about the case of like very sensitive information like like do you have hiv do you yep. have certain diseases that you don't want your employer to know about um and and don't have to don't have to tell them about mm -hmm. which in general mm -hmm. is basically every uh, disease that you would have so like these are the types of things that we we need the regulation to catch up to yeah and i think this is something that could go very black mirror very quickly like i just think there's a dystopian potential i already kind of see it with some of these wearable technologies more than others like amazon has this um wristband called halo that includes a tone of voice analysis that will help you improve your communication skills. And then they also have a body composition analysis, which requires you to upload four photos of your body to Amazon. Like just some of these things are getting increasingly weird. I could see like a, a catastrophic like cyborg future coming out of this. So I just I think that there are certain use cases, but there are also valid concerns, even just on a more um, like tangible level, people yeah. with eating disorders, people with OCD sort of, you know, there, there are demographics where this level of information might not be helpful or healthy, to be honest. And so I think it's important to kind of go into this cautiously because this is a whole new terrain. Absolutely. Well, Let's move on. Will a ban on menthols discriminate against black smokers? The FDA recently introduced regulations to outlaw menthol cigarettes, and they say it's about keeping new smokers from getting hooked. But critics say it disproportionately targets the black community. 85% of black smokers prefer menthols. So this ban basically will go into effect about a year from now. The FDA proposed a ban on April 28th, and it will be a year from now where it goes into effect. Essentially, menthol cigarettes are no longer going to be legal. And um, there's really no scientific evidence to suggest that menthol cigarettes are any more dangerous than regular cigarettes. But the problem is menthol cigarettes make cigarettes taste better. It makes the smoke smoother. And so it allows you to probably smoke a little bit more than you normally would. And these cigarettes have been disproportionately marketed towards African-American consumers. Uh, I have a couple of photos here that show this. So I'll show you guys first. This is just one of the advertisements. This is from like the 70s. And this is egregious. Like this is basically just saying like, look, you know, Newport's 
They're for black people. And not to mention, this was after uh, these types of advertisements were banned from television. You could no longer do cigarettes on uh, cigarette advertisements on television at this point. And so this is this is from the 70s. But even as far as like the, the 80s and 90s, they continued these aggressive ad campaigns that really showed African-Americans enjoying menthol cigarettes. Uh, and if you look at if you try to find, you know, these advertisements that show like, you know, white people enjoying these cigarettes, they're harder to find. The, the advertisements campaign were just they were very specifically targeting African-Americans. And just just look at this box. <laughs> it's a cool looking box. It has an upside down Nike sign on it. It's got this teal like color change going on. The gold rim. I, I, I'm sorry. This just really appeals to black culture. And, and there's a lot of reasons why. I won't get into all of them. But uh, it even says menthol kings. You know, what do we call each other? What, what up, my king? Hey. Like, this is just, this is egregious. <laughs> Question for you. If menthol cigarettes are not, to be clear, I don't like marketing cigarettes to anybody. Yeah. But in terms of the standards being established, I remember Marlboro Red with the cowboy, cowboy and all that shit. For yeah. that, that probably appeals to a certain kind of white person. Is this just market segmentation, or is there something more nefarious going on? An honest question. It probably I don't really is know. honestly the first. It probably is the former. There, I mean, they considered this to be their target audience, their target demographic. So they said, this, "We're going to tailor our." Our advertisements towards them. I don't think it was a part of a nefarious effort to say, "Oh, let's let's get black people smoking more than white people," because, like you said, there are the the cowboy Marlboro uh, ads that appeal to certain white smokers as well. But it is one of those things where you know we we see one of the stats that I pulled on this was that public health experts say that menthol cigarettes actually have led to higher rates of lung cancer for African-American men. African-American men have higher rates of lung cancer in America than white men. 47,000 black lives are lost each year due to smoking-related diseases. And again, 85% of black smokers smoke menthol cigarettes. So there's, a, yeah. there's an argument to be made that these have caused black people or black smokers, I should say, to smoke more and thereby giving them uh, more cancer and, and greater health risk. So then are you in favor of this ban, given that background? It's complicated because I don't really think, you know, I, first of all, it's going to create a black market. You're going to you're gonna be able to go to 125th and Lexington and buy, you know, fake uh, menthol cigarettes and they're going to be unregulated, which means they're not going to, you know, they're going to be even possibly even more dangerous than these. I believe there are, there are already places in Chinatown where you can get basically, you know, fake, uh, or let's say fake, but you can already get basically handmade, hand-rolled menthol cigarettes. So it's going to create a black market. That's a problem. And also, too, I don't really like the government telling people what they can and can't consume. I, I, you know, that's Especially when it's specific to their health, right? This is where mm -hmm. I'm like I'm right on the fence. It's like if it's obviously there's secondhand smoke, which yeah, is, that's is a, a different concern. And that's, that's why I'm a little bit more sympathetic to bans of smoking in public places. But if it's if it's harmful to you and only you, let's pretend for a second, um, which in a lot of cases smoking is probably true. How do we treat that? I'm, uh, you know, mm -hmm. like. Do we do we just want the government incentivizing it or banning it? You know, like well, where we you... we consider drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. We consider them way too dangerous to say, oh, well, that's only you. That only affects you. We consider those drugs a public health concern that we have to address through legislation. And in my in my opinion, cigarettes aren't that different. I mean, they're obviously not as bad as methamphetamine or something like that. But I mean, this costs our healthcare system a lot of money. When yeah. people get lung cancer, when people get emphysema, when people get these diseases, people get, you know, that, that that's a burden on our healthcare system. Well, Ricky, the classic retort to that from libertarians is, well, there's, you know, there's a slippery slope from that to, you know, doing what Bloomberg did and banning soda, for example. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that you're not like a purely libertarian in every possible way, but where do you, where do you draw the line on these types of regulations? I mean, I think that 
adult use is really different than youth use and protecting young people especially is important. But, you know, as long as there is informed consent essentially in purchasing these products, which I think there's an argument to be made for and against, obviously the data is out there and you can research if this is safe or not, but most people don't really go through the due diligence and they're also addictive. So I can see, I mean, I can see the pros and the cons, but then I also don't understand this very targeted ban of menthol cigarettes and not cigarettes in general like it feels kind of strange i know the eu did a similar ban recently mm-hmm. and only like eight percent of their um, users quit as a result and a lot of people went to illicit markets or just to alternatives so i'm just i'm not sure that this is the most useful ban necessarily um youth use of menthol products is going down whereas i'm more sympathetic to a ban on flavored vapes and stuff like that which is clearly being used by teenagers more um youth use of menthol cigarettes is on on the decline it's mostly adult use whereas flavored vapes while vaping is on a decline in the youth demographic that is sort of a gateway um nicotine product that a lot of young people are turning to or have historically turned to um, and so I think that there is a distinction to be made and having a, a strict rule on what age you can access these products seems like a reasonable compromise to me. And just to add some data, you talked about the EU, uh, Canada banned menthol cigarettes in 2017. And, and this is some data from that ban. 59% of menthol smokers picked up unflavored cigarettes, 20% wound up quitting, and another 20% bought them at native reservations. So 20% quitting, I think, is the key number there. We're yeah. talking about, like, are people seeking a black market or in other places? You know, that's an interesting data point. I mean, it depends on your theory of government. Like, I think if your theory of government is that you're more willing, you're more Bloombergian here, and you're more willing to see the government get more involved in people's health decisions, mm. personal health decisions, uh, and ban more products that are, like, obviously bad for people— then that 20% is going to be enough for you. But if you're more skeptical, it probably isn't enough. And I just want to point out one more thing. You know, when we talk about, and I agree, Ricky, that, you know, banning it for youth is more important than banning it across the board. But you ask any smoker when they started smoking, generally speaking, they're going to say they started smoking as a youth. Yeah. They started smoking in their teen years or sometimes younger than that. So yeah. it leads to adulthood smoking when you when you have, you know, it, when the access is out there, it's going to start in the teen years and it's going to lead to, generally speaking, lead to um, adult use. So, Although I would say that even just our minor age differences relatively, like for me, I'd people were not smoking when I was in high school. Like that just wasn't even a thing. And I know that we had previously discussed this and that was a different experience for both of you. And so I think that it is important to know that there is a kind of cultural movement away from that, which Mm -hmm. is great. And maybe something that needs to happen organically or be allowed to happen organically. You know, and the last time we talked about this, I think I had mentioned that there were like designated smoking areas in my high school. And after we said that, I was like, is that possibly true? And then I saw a buddy of mine who's like this uh, learning specialist tweeted this week, that literally they had those in his high school. And he went to high school in the 80s where they would allow you to smoke at the school. (laughs) And I was like, this, my memory serves me correct. I think by the time I went, it wasn't like explicitly allowed, but they just looked the other way. Yeah. But that's wild. Like it's like a smoking, it's like when you see the people smoking on airplanes and like old movies, you're like, this is crazy. (laughs) How how was that ever allowed? And that's That's a good testament to how arming people with knowledge actually can create a cultural change. And that obviously is the ideal that giving people more information drives them to make the right decisions for themselves rather than a top-down government ban. Right, yeah, I would never fly that airline. You know, like, 
this is people smoking on the airplane. <laughs> jet red. Yeah. Wouldn't fly jet red. <laughs> the Marlboro Reds. It would seem that a single law underpins the entire internet. That may seem like an overstatement, but Section 230 is as fundamental as it gets for how our online world is regulated. Both Democrats and Republicans would like to see it reformed in different ways and for different reasons. Ricky, we've touched on this law a few times before, but really explain to our listeners just what Section 230 is and what the fault lines here with this issue are. Yeah, so Section 230 was passed in 1996 in the very early days of the internet. Um, and it basically sets out that social media companies or what would become social media companies are not publishers, they're platforms. And so therefore, they're not liable for user-generated content. So you can't sue Twitter for what somebody tweets, but you can sue that person if it's if if there's a suit there. Um, and so basically, it's protecting these, these platforms against lawsuits. It's allowing them to be an open forum for speech without people coming after them. Because if you open that up, essentially, you could sue for whatever is happening. And so that increases censorship naturally. But they're still liable for criminal law, copyright law, and sex trafficking laws under Section 230, which is a very important distinction. So essentially, like federal laws that might be broken on the platform, they're responsible for taking care of. However, Section 230 is one of the few kind of deceptively bipartisan issues where people want to repeal it on both sides, but for entirely different reasons. Uh, recently, Marjorie Taylor Greene proposed a bill to repeal it entirely. Obama's calling on Congress to reform it, and Biden has previously said that he wants to repeal it as well, which is a more extreme stance than most people on the left. There's two separate arguments. The conservative argument is essentially that Social media platforms are discriminatory against certain viewpoints, and therefore, because they're censoring certain viewpoints, they're acting like publishers, they're not acting like objective platforms, and therefore, the government needs to intervene to protect digital free speech. Whereas the progressive argument is more along the lines of hate speech, speech and misinformation and Russian influence, potential sex trafficking, like dangerous speech on these platforms um, needs to be cracked down on, and therefore, these companies need to be held liable. So they're completely different arguments that are coming from different ends. But in the, weirdly, there's like a bipartisan coalition towards repealing it or at least reforming it. Yeah. And you think that most of the time you hear bipartisan, you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. But actually, I think whenever you got people lining up in Congress to regulate speech, we should all be very careful. There was a really good article a couple of years ago from your colleague, Elizabeth Nolan Brown, and, and Reason, which I thought eviscerated, and we'll link to this, obviously, eviscerated the arguments to at least repeal 230. Now, there's a middle ground. Oh, you know, Obama gave a speech at Stanford not too long ago, basically saying that there's like, you know, some good faith tweaks that you can make to it. I think Biden has walked back now and Saki's saying that they're at least not for a full repeal. But like, by and large, you've got members of both political parties, like you're talking about, who want to make pretty sweeping changes to that. And what makes me nervous is that they have a totally different world in mind, which makes me think, all right, let's just leave this thing alone. And it's kind of a great law. Like a lot of people say that the internet as we have it now would not exist. Now, some people don't like the internet as we have now, and there's certainly parts of it that I hate. But like, like the internet would not exist in its current form in, in all the good ways that it's good uh, if we didn't have these protections. Definitely. And there's, I think, a pretty strong argument against any sort of tweaking or any major tweak to Section 230, which is essentially 
all of these platforms are going to need to err on the side of censorship and caution because if they're responsible for everything that happens, then if someone just flags something or reports something, they may as well remove it because yes. we already live in a litigious society and this just opens them up. Like just the floodgates would open to lawsuits and to responsibility for, I mean, imagine if Twitter was responsible for every single tweet that all of us sent out in real time. That just right. isn't sustainable what i don't understand is the right-wing argument that repealing section 230 would make free speech for conservatives like easier on places like twitter because section 230 doesn't require these platforms to be held reliable for say the information that's on there so if it doesn't require these platforms to be liable then repealing section 230 would make them possibly liable so i'm, I'm not understanding that logic. yeah the mindset is that they're acting like publishers because they're curating what can be on there and they're i think that there is an argument to be made that some of that is viewpoint discrimination but that doesn't mean, and I don't, I'm I'm not sympathetic to the argument that that means that you just remove protections entirely. I yeah. think that these tech companies do have freedom of conscience. I don't agree with some of the choices that they've made historically, but it is like a free market issue and not a governmental one. But that is essentially the argument there. And then also there's a strange argument on the left, like Kamala Harris has uh, particularly brought up issues of sex trafficking, which it doesn't make any sense to me because the DOJ is perfectly welcome to go against like any of these platforms that yeah. are there was there was a website called Backpage that um, had like personal sex ads uh, registered on it. And, you know, the Department of Justice is free to go after any of these under Section 230 because sex trafficking is still a, a consideration. And so it's not it's not saying that it's a completely lawless uh, Internet for us. And so I think on both sides, there's completely flawed arguments. And I think they passed a carve out for sex trafficking a couple of years ago. Now, a lot of people think it didn't go far enough. But I think like, the, the debate, I think, is using old standards that are built into law. Is it a, are they common carriers like the telecommunications companies or are they publishers? Mm -hmm. And I think the reality is there's somewhere in between. Yeah. And I think this is what gets muddy. And, and in um, Nolan Brown's piece, she actually goes through and talks about some of these false claims that are pervasive on both the left and the right. She talks about Holly, who says that, you know, there's some kind of requirement of neutrality uh, inherent in Section 230. But as she points out, the mention of like sort of the the spirit of neutrality is in the preamble, but not the text of this bill. And there's actually no part of this bill that requires these internet service providers and companies to actually be neutral on content issues. And that gets to the fact that these aren't strictly common carriers because like mm -hmm. telephone companies kind of neutral, like you make a call, they're not, they don't have the ability to make viewpoint decisions. So that this is where it does get murky. Yeah. But like you said, there's so many fallacies out there in this debate so many um you know f factually incorrect statements being made about 230 and that's why i think she calls it one of the least understood pieces of legislation but most important pieces of legislation we've ever had yeah and i think one of the murkiest aspects is the fact that increasingly online platforms are becoming the public forum in the way that they operate and i think that's probably the most convincing conservative argument is that if this is how we all talk and there's viewpoint discrimination on them then should the government intervene to maintain free speech? But I think the answer to that is free markets and opening up more, more truth social and other well, right, <laughs> platforms and as a response. The market is very fluid. Like look at Twitter. Twitter, yeah, exactly. you know, a month from now is going to be very different than it was three months ago. And new companies will come. You know, old companies will die. And that's that's part of this. This is like absolutely. This is the public square.
A couple of updates. Amazon fired several employees this week who were involved in union efforts at the company's Staten Island warehouse. This wasn't unexpected. We warned on this show just a couple of weeks ago that Amazon was likely to get more aggressive after the loss at JFK 8. So uh, basically what happened was on Thursday, Amazon informed more than half a dozen senior managers involved at that JFK 8 warehouse involved in the unionizing efforts there that they were being fired. Now, these firings also occurred outside the company's typical employee review cycle. So people are looking at this basically saying that these people were only fired because they were helping with that Amazon labor union. Uh, speaking of which, the leader of that union, Chris Smalls, had a very interesting exchange on Capitol Hill with Senator Lindsey Graham. You forgot that the people are the ones who make this these companies operate. And then we're not protected. And then the process for when we hold these companies accountable, it's not working for us, then that's the reason why we're here today. That's the reason why I'm here to represent the workers. And I think that it's in your best interest to realize that it's not a, a left or a right thing. It's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. It's a workers thing. It's a workers issue. And I thought he made a very powerful statement in saying that. And it's also odd that Lindsey Graham was kind of like supporting Amazon here. It's like, I thought Lindsey Graham was a populist. <laughs> I don't, I honestly, I was telling you this offline. I don't know how to place anybody anymore on issues yeah. of unions and yeah. big corporations. Like a good example is Elon Musk, right? So you have these people who are like, especially like on the alt left side who are very critical of Amazon mm -hmm. and are very pro-union Amazon, but love Elon Musk and are cheering him on when he's saying, I'm going to fire all these Twitter employees and never mind Tesla has all their own labor issues i'm like nobody honestly i don't know how to peg anybody anymore on the union issues it, yeah smalls one really on amazing. tucker carlson and tucker was pro amazon union on that as well so i think this is an interesting kind of bipartisan thing and you know there might be a fault line that might clarify things a little bit more on the private and public uh distinction with the unions but um it's it's interesting because there's kind of a widespread surprising base of support yeah, yeah it's a really interesting story we'll have to keep an eye out on it and finally today, the American Bar Association is recommending that law schools stop requiring LSAT when they look at applicants. Now, this falls right into the Ravi Venn diagram of standardized testing and law schools. So everybody, <laughs> bingo cards, get, check them. Uh, what do you make of this news? Well, I think this is just another step in the direction of these qualitative measures over like objective measures. And if we remember, we've done a couple of segments now. We talked about the Asian American discrimination lawsuit in Harvard. We talked about uh, standardized testing generally. Generally. And, you know, I'm on record thinking that objective measures are really important and they're, they're really important for the most vulnerable amongst us because without them, the system is able to use these uh, less objective, subjective measures to discriminate against people. That's exactly what's alleged in the Asian American lawsuit. They basically, the, the test scores of Asian Americans were inconvenient to Harvard, so they allegedly used a whole bunch of other stuff that wasn't quantifiable to try to get those people out of the selection process and, and allegedly did. We'll find out what the Supreme Court thinks about that very soon. And I know this from my own personal experience, which is, you know, I went from SUNY Binghamton, which is a, I think it's top tier, but like, you know, Yale Law didn't think so. They hadn't accepted anybody for like 15 years before I had gotten into Yale Law wow. School. But, and I had a 4.0 GPA when I applied. I would not have gotten into Yale Law School if I had not also done extremely well on the LSAT. They, they wouldn't have known what to do with my GPA versus uh, the LSAT score. And then I saw this as a school principal. The same type of experience is what my, my students had in my school, which is that schools don't know what to do with one GPA versus another because mm -hmm. it's a totally subjective measure. But if you do as well on the standardized test as the kid in the fancy school, then that gets people's attention. And the clarity of that is really important 
for people trying to escape poverty or just trying to go from a good school to a great school or just trying to have some semblance of predictability in admissions processes. Yeah. You know, what's so interesting is that there's this argument that these standardized tests are somehow racist, that they're somehow biased towards you know African-Americans or people of color. And I think that's bull because it's like this is the one way in which you can, like you said, come from a school that's kind of modest, that's not that great. And if you get an extremely high ACT score, if you get a good LSAT, then you can go to these universities that otherwise you would not be able to get in. And so that's why, I mean, you just have to study. I mean, people are saying, oh, well, African-Americans don't get as high out on average on these tests as others. But yeah, but there are individual African-Americans who score very good on these tests. And that's how they get into Harvard. That's how they get into Yale Law School. So I, I think it's I think it's ridiculous. But I do have one question for you, Robbie. What did you get on the LSAT? I got a 174. That's a pretty good LSAT score. Also, oh, okay. I, I was going to make a joke, but I don't have anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think to just to, to wrap that up, I, I totally agree. And notice none of these people are actually talking about what the alternative is. Yeah. Because like, yeah. Is, are the alternatives even more regressive? Chances are they are. Like my father in, in this, my dad grew up in a village in India. His father had never had any formal education. My dad, you know, his school was literally under a tree. Like he did not have any money, any resources as a kid and was able to go to medical school because he took a standardized test. Mm -hmm. And the state medical school was using subjective measures and rejected him, even though he crushed the federal medical exam, but the federal system had it weighed the test more. So my dad was able to get into the federal medical school and I exist because of that. Like he would not have been able to escape poverty. Now, is it a perfect system? No. Should more people like my dad have given more opportunities? Absolutely. But like the alternative to the standardized test would have been worse for him. He never would have gotten out of that situation. Yeah. And this comes as GPA, especially undergraduate GPA is increasingly predictive of law school success as we've discussed before with grade inflation. And just to put a figure on this whole conversation, when you combine an LSAT score with an undergraduate GPA, you improve the um, prediction of how well someone will do in their first year of law school by 57% as compared to just looking at someone's GPA. So looking at them together and in tandem and in the context of the whole person is a really valuable tool to predict who's actually going to be a successful fit at your school. Yeah, we should be investing more in tutoring people how to get good grades on the LSAT, how to get good ACT scores. We should be investing more in that instead of trying to remove these things. And like you said, going to more subjective standards for how someone gets into these good schools. And this is actually an area where things have gotten much better since I was in school. You the, Back in the day, you could only purchase books or go to Kaplan. Mm -hmm. But now you can go to all these free online resources. Yeah. Now, they're not always as good, en good enough, but they're better than it was. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we thank you all for listening and watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, make sure to rate review and subscribe we will see you guys next time